chapter, and uh, this chapter 14 uh, down through chapter 15, verse 7, dealing with the relationship between the weaker and the stronger believer. And uh, the thing is now that we've been looking at, and we introduced last time, actually two times ago, some principles. In verse 1 to 3, we have that principle of receiving one another. Uh, we are to receive the, uh, the weaker brethren, uh, like the end of verse 3 there, for God hath received him. So the same status, the same mindset we're learning about there in receiving one another. Then in verse 4 to 9, it's that principle of sonship, uh, how we, are, we make decisions uh, as adult sons, and uh, we do it unto the Lord. So there's that great layout there. And now in verse 10 to 13, we begin to look at this principle of lordship. And uh, in, in doing that, we again, the, weak, the, weaker, the stronger brother is to receive the weaker brother as Christ receives him. As, again, who he is in Christ. He's weak in the faith in that he, they have not yet built into the realm of their inner man the, the, uh, that capacity to walk in wisdom, the grace life. Uh, they're, they're, they're not malicious. There's no ill, there's no Ill intent here. They are uh, doing it under the Lord. They're doing it graciously. They're hearts of thanksgiving. And yet we, the stronger, has to view them, receive them as, who, as how God did and not hold them to doubtful disputations. And then also, as we're coming along here, we begin to understand that we cannot accelerate the weaker brother's edification process. And that's really that issue of sonship. Everyone, the verse says there at the end of verse 5, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. And we're not to view the weaker brother as inferior we're not to demand the weaker brother to come up to our level of spiritual maturity. Everyone in this room is at different levels. We're not to come in and say, you're not there yet, so, you know, you're excommunicated. Get out, okay, and come back when you are. And I know churches, I know grace churches that hold to that, that if you're not with us where we're at, then you, don't, you need to go and study at home. You need to get there on your own, and then you can come. And that just is not the idea at all here. We are to, we, again, we can't accelerate the, the edification process, but we are to help grow it, help mature it. It's interesting in Philippians 3, after Sidlow Baxter in his book, Explore the Book, said that after 35 years of a Christ-intoxicated life, the Apostle Paul said, I want to know him more and more. So, I, obviously, if Paul can cry that after, you know, meeting the Lord face-to-face, -face, then we too, probably, maybe we ought to have the same opinion of, well, we haven't, just because we know something doesn't mean we have all arrived. And, again, that issue of relative maturity you learn it, you, you maintain the rule, you get there, you don't leave it, and then whatever you don't know, study, you'll get there, and you're continually growing. And again, the weak in the faith, the weaker believer, verse 6, it's very clear that he that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. He that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. 
He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. Again, he's doing this out of a heart of faith. He just isn't established in the faith. So it isn't a weakened conscience or a weakened morality or any of that. It's just a weak in the Pauline distinctive truths. And, and that, that issue of really giving God thanks, what separates the believer from the heathen, Romans 1, is the issue of giving thanks. It is a heart of thanksgiving. And that's what we're dealing here. So Paul, basically what he's laying out up to this point is you have to be careful not to impose your level of spiritual maturity on the weaker. And if I do, now we're in verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And now, in light of that, Paul is now going to begin to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. And if I'm... If, if I hold that weaker brother to my level of spiritual maturity, I'm judging him. And I'm judging him as inferior. I'm judging him as you don't know enough, and until you get there, we can't fellowship. And what gives you the right, actually nothing gives you the right, to stand and to sit in the judgment seat of Christ. And that's really what we're going to get at now. Verse 11 for it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. He's quoting Isaiah 45. So then every one of us shall give an account to himself, to God. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So there's going to be an introduction now to the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul brings this up here. And there's some principles here that we're going to introduce this morning. We're going to spend a couple weeks looking at the subject because when you talk about the judgment seat of Christ, everybody goes a panic, afraid, terror is struck into the hearts of the believer. <laughs> and it really is not that at all. And it's fascinating to get to understand why Paul brings up the judgment seat here. Okay, He doesn't tell us any of the details about it other than we are going to stand before the judge. But what he does tell us is who is the rightful judge. Now, in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, he gives details about the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to go look at those in a couple weeks. But the point here is really why does he bring it up right here? And again, when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, there's, you, go, you Google this on YouTube it or search it, and you get some crazy ideas. And in reality, when you talk about the judgment seat of Christ, usually what happens is folks have great concern about it. There's anxiety. There's terror. There's a lot of misunderstanding about it because we, we use that word judgment and we read stuff into that word judgment. And in reality, in Scripture, judgment doesn't always mean, bend over, I'm spanking you. There's a discernment. There's some different things in it. And actually, there's a, a list of seven or eight different judgments in Scripture. We'll look at them, hopefully, uh, 
next time or, or the next time, depending on how far we get this morning, okay? But as we look at this, we need to understand the gravity and the seriousness of the judgment seat of Christ. And when we do understand what it's all about, there should never be any terror or fear or anxiety or concern. Actually, it is going to be a day of rejoicing, and we need to understand that. But here in the context, and again, context is king. The stronger has no the stronger brother believer has no right to stand in judgment of the weaker nor does the weaker have the right to stand in judgment of the stronger okay and that's really what Paul is driving cuz what is it what what's the context 14:1 him that is weak in the faith receive ye but not to doubtful disputations we are to have God's estimation, God's esteem, God's value, God's viewpoint here when it comes to the weaker brethren. Okay? Or I should say brother or sister. <laughs> you know, but it's a, it's a uh, in the gender neutral terminology today, you know. <laughs> somebody asked me, because somebody made a point one time a couple months ago. Actually, now it's been, well, this is October. It's really November. So probably first of the year, so that's a few months ago. That you know, Rick, you better watch your your uh, gender pronouns. I'm like, I'm watching them fly right out of my mouth, you know, because that's just what they are. And it, you know, you can work through it, and there's no ill intent there. But you ha- in the context, what's the deal? Why does he bring up the judgment seat of Christ? Because the stronger and the bro- the weaker have no right to stand in judgment of the other. He's going to demonstrate, he's going to teach to, here to us that only Christ, only the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who can righteously judge another human. And we're going to spend the morning in 14 verse 9. We didn't get there last time, we're going to clean that up, but it's in connection to the, the judgment seats issue here. So what Paul's going to do by bringing up the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to demonstrate that, the, that only the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who can righteously judge anyone. For you or for me to judge someone else is inferior. It's actually dangerous. We're going to, if you look there at verse 13... Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this, rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother. See, that's, last time we looked over there and we saw that if, in, in 2 Corinthians 8, that if I'm judging, I'm sinning against Christ. And that issue of sin is very specific. Very few times does Paul talk about the believer sinning and it not be specific. Okay? And here, with the weaker brother and the interaction... We, we, we have to be very careful not to take the job that belongs to the Lord. We have plenty of problems of our own to worry about. We don't need to be also now worrying about other people's issues and judging them, okay? The verse in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24, uh, that not that I should have dominion, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. That's my ministry verse. It's been that way since day one. 
because my job isn't to control and run your life. I have a hard enough time to do that. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you. Okay? And my kids will second that opinion. So then why would I come over here and try to run your life when in actuality, what is my job? To help you. To be a helper. Because I may not be there one day when you need to be able to stand. And that's the point. So Paul here is we're not accountable to the weaker, and we're not accountable to the strong. Actually, verse 12, so then let every one of us give an account of who? Himself to God. I don't have to sit here and say, well, on this date, Bruce did this, and on this day, Trevor did that. It's not my job. That's the Lord will take care of that. My job is, well, you know what, Lord, on this day, I didn't, you know, and that's really not what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ, but... We'll see that as we get there. So Paul here, by bringing up the, up the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to demonstrate that he's the only one who can occupy that seat. We have no right to it. We can't. Even when we try, we can't. Secondly, Paul is also, by bringing up the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to learn something about who we are as members one of another, and as we begin to adopt God's viewpoint, his value, his esteem with each other, as we adopt that living sacrifice idea principle out of chapter 12, verse 1, that comes from the renewing of our mind, then when we think about the weaker brother, we are to think about, well, why not help them? Prepare for the judgment seat of Christ. If I'm the stronger brother and I understand what the judgment seat of Christ is, and I've run into someone who doesn't, why not help them understand, help them get prepared for it? Because the judgment seat of Christ is going to be, it's one of the most wonderful doctrines to help you in time in the moment, know if what you're doing is right or wrong, and then over here to understand at the, at the end, going into the heavenly places, that, you know what, I'm going in. I'm going in without spot, without blemish. I'm going in ready to go, okay? So it's a wonderful doctrine rather than this, you know, and everything. So as, we, as he brings it up, we're going to begin to learn that we shouldn't be selfish. If, if you look there at verse 11, uh, um, uh, 14, actually verse 12, so then every one of us, see that us, verse 13, let us not therefore judge that no man, um, Romans 14, 13, verse 10, for we shall all stand, you see this is a corporate thing, this isn't, and it's interesting too by the way, just FYI, that every time Paul does talk about the judgment seat of Christ, it is in the context of the corporate church, the body of Christ as a whole. It's very fascinating. Why? Because our job, instead of the stronger brother being selfish or self-serving or self-focused, we're to adopt the mindset of Christ and we're to come along and we're to help build up the weaker, help the weaker brother to prepare for the judgment seat of Christ, to help them get there, to help them understand what it's about, answer their questions. That's why in verse 13, he says, no man put that stumbling block, that occasion to fall in his brother's way. 
why in the world would you, why in the world would a stronger uh, believer want to do harm or damage to a weaker brother? I would then, if that's the case, I would then question how strong the stronger really thinks he is because he's not functioning where the stronger believer should be. So he's actually what? Weak in the faith as well. See, so when you think about this and you begin to kind of digest down here what Paul's doing now, introducing this subject to us, is listen, you guys that think you're stronger, you're over here judging the weaker. That's not your job. That means you don't understand the judgment seat of Christ. So now what are you? You're weak in the faith in this area. You're weak here. You need help. See, so there's a lot of education going on here. If you look down at verse 15, 14, 15, but to thy brother be grieved, but if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, why walkest thou not charitably? Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. You see that destroyed not? Don't look at, you're, you're looking at him wrong. You're over here judging away and you're not supposed to do that. The judgment seat of Christ is not about you. Look over with me at 1 Thessalonians 2. In 1 Thessalonians, every chapter talks about the rapt, a component of the rapture. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 2. Actually, 1 Thessalonians 1. Just notice this, verse 10, verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now watch and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Okay, so what are we waiting for? Well, we're waiting for the day of redemption. We're waiting for what we call the rapture. But notice the end of that verse. Even Jesus, which delivered, is that present, past, or future? Past, it is done from the wrath to come. So what do I know about when the rapture is going to take place? Before the wrath. So we, it is a pre-tribulation doctrine. Not post, not mid. You know, mid-trib, they get that gun in the middle because of that thing in Revelation. Post, after the wrath. No, he's delivered us. He's already set us to be out before the wrath comes. Okay? So there's our timing. Chapter 2. 2.19. For what is our hope or joy, or crown of rejoicing. Everybody wants to know what the crown is. Are not even who? Ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. See the ye, the you, you. See, the issue of the judgment seat of Christ is not about you. It's about the corporate, the body, because you are the crown of rejoicing. When Paul looks out there and says, I got a crown of rejoicing, he's not talking about a Burger King crown on his head or having an antler set out there, you know, with, he's talking about, hey, when I look around at the body and I see ye, the group, you're my crown of rejoicing. See that? For ye are our glory and joy. By the way, chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 3, 13, to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father. 
So that's what the judgment seat of Christ is going to produce. Your heart's unblameable. All right? Now watch. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So after the judgment seat, where he established your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, what does he do? He then takes us into the presence of the Father. Now the, the Son, the Lord's got to leave and go down because he's, he's got a war in heaven and things to do in the prophetic program. See? So there's another step. Now in chapter 4, you start there in verse 13 to verse 18, and you get that, uh, the, how the event is of us leaving. Then in chapter 5, look at verse 23. Here's the end goal. 23, 523, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, the whole of you. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's happening? So when you come back to Romans 14, when Paul begins to introduce the topic of the judgment seat of Christ, he's not talking about, it's a, it, about you being the issue. He's talking about, listen, I want to rejoice in you. Not you rejoice. Now, you're going to rejoice. Don't get me wrong. You're in the presence of the Lord. <laughs> okay? And again, the judgment seat here isn't a negative thing. It's not a bad thing. It's rather a glorious thing. So go back to Romans 14. So, one, only the Lord Jesus Christ has the right to sit on the judgment seat. You don't. Number two, we want to have the view of the judgment seat in light of, him, of helping prepare others, edifying others, the weaker brethren, okay? 14.19 is the idea, let us therefore follow after things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another, and that's the goal. Ultimately, we are responsible for ourselves, it's our own issues. We are to be aware of our, own, our responsibility for our own edification, okay? Now, I'm a helper of your joy. The local assembly is here to do that. But who ultimately, where does it lie? It lies with you to say yes or to say no. So Paul here, don't be concerned with the weaker brother's inferiority. Don't violate them. Help them get ready. Help them prepare. Okay? And that's really what we're after. Now, in 14.9, this verse, we didn't get into it last time, and I want to do that this morning because it's going to link us into this issue of the judgment seat. Okay? 14.9, for to this end Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's, there's this issue, this principle of lordship. Now, this is not lordship salvation, okay, where you make him lord of your life and all that nonsense. He is lord. It's his lordship. For to this end, here's the goal, all right? Watch football yesterday. Watch baseball game last night. What happened? Did we get to the 
ninth inning, and it's the end. What are we looking for? What's the goal of the game? To, in the end is what? To win. That's the goal, you know. Not second place. You know what second place is? First loser. See? So we're not doing that. What are we doing? We're, I watched the race yesterday, the NASCAR race, and uh, in Martinsville, short track. It's very, very bumping, bumping, bumping. And at the very end, they're going around the corner, and 45 hits 19 or whoever. I don't remember the guy's name because this is the infinity, so it's the young guys. I mean, he hit him hard right in the rear end, bumper to bumper, and spun him out and won the race. And the fans are booing, not that he hit him, but how he hit him. See, it was, a, it was on purpose to wreck him rather than a little nudge to get him up the track so he can go around, which is what they'd been doing all 249 laps to each other. This one was, it was blatant, it was obvious, and the 20-year-old kid gets out of the car, Victor, and he's, and they ask him, well, what, what about that? And he goes, that's racing. And they're like, and I mean, you could barely hear the poor kid talk because all the booze. What's the goal in the end? Win the race. Well, what's the end here? For to this end, what's the ultimate goal? What's the ultimate purpose Christ of Christ dying and rose and revived? That, the purpose, the intent, he might be what? Lord. See that? He might be Lord both of the dead and living. What's the purpose of the death and the resurrection and the reviving? Is that he can be what? Lord. And that's Paul's point here. The, God, the one sitting, the one sitting on the judgment seat is who? He's the Lord. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's that's who he who is he? He's the Lord. So when Paul talks here about the judgment seat, he's talking about the one sitting on it. By the way, look at verse 6. In verse 6, he that regardeth the day regardeth it unto, who, unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth thank, giveth God thanks and he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. Verse 8, for whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Eight times in verse 6, 8, and 9, he uses the Lord. He identifies him as Lord. Four times as God. Verse 10, he says, for the judgment seat, before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 11, for as it is written, as I, as, as I live, saith the Lord, every tongue shall bow to me, and every tongue, I'm, I'm sorry, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So who is the Lord? Well, he's Christ, but he's also God. That's why he, verse 11, he's quoting Isaiah 45, verse 23. By quoting Isaiah 45, what Paul is saying is the same Lord of the Old Testament is the one who occupies the judgment seat of Christ. It's the same guy. And that's critical here because who is the Lord? He's God. Who is Christ? He's God. So who are we going to give account to? God. See? 
And when Paul's using that here uh, because of the issue of the death and, res- and rose and revived. And by the way, this verse gives a lot of people headaches, and we're going to talk about that headache here as we go through here. And we have to understand that the reason that Jesus Christ is the only person who has the right to, sit, to stand in judgment of another human, of humanity, is because who is he? He's the God-man. And that's what Paul's going to emphasize here. Who better to judge man than God who became a man? See that? So his judgment is going to be what? Righteous. It isn't going to be faulty. He, he, had, he was without sin. He's tempted in all points as common unto man, but without sin, he does, he, see, he's there. He's experienced it. All of humanity is going to be judged, by the way. So don't panic. I know you look around and you see the wickedness of the world and you think they're just getting away with it. Not Revelation 20. Great white throne judgment's going to clean their clock. So don't panic about it. All of, I don't know if you've ever thought about, how can he be the judge of the dead? That means he has to do what? Raise them up. Well, what's death and hell going to do? Revelation, they're going to deliver them up. And then he's going to nail them. <laughs> Get them. Pull the books out. What, acti- what works did you do? What was your activity? And bam, he's going to nail them. So what we have to ask as we get into this is, what kind of judgment are we talking about? Why are we being judged? And what are the results of or the consequences of that judgment? Again, there are different judgments in Scripture, and we're going to look at them. They're not all the same either, by the way. So don't panic, you know. Don't get all upset. Don't get any anxiety. Don't say, well, you're saying this. No, no. here's what the Scripture says. We're, we are, when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ and the Lord judging the quick and the dead here, we are not talking about being judged for our sin. That judgment has already taken place at Calvary, at the cross. Okay? And again, one day in the future... The lost are going to get judged for not going to Calvary. See, we are going to stand before the Lord, and we are going to give an account. Oh, we'll talk about that when we get in there. I don't know what you're going to say to the Lord to give an account. I'm going to tell you, you ain't going to say nothing, because there's nothing for you to say. He's just going to read your meter, and he's going to expose all of the secret things of your heart. Yeah, well, Calvary covered them. I mean, think about the uh, Ark of the Covenant. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? The big pieces were the broken law. What did they do once a year? They went in and put blood on the, those cherubs, didn't it? And as the Lord looked down, what did he see? He saw the blood that fixed that broken covenant, that broken law. Well, what is he going to look at you? He's going to look at you and he's going to say, hey, you're mine, man, because I see the sun. You're in the sun. 
but we've got some things that we're going to build over here. The gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. We'll talk about all that. Gold, silver, precious stones works out to be wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. God's, God's wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. The wood, hay, and stubble works out to be that old vain religious system and man's knowledge and man's viewpoint. And we'll look at all of that. So that's the issue. But that, ha that issue of building on the foundation is after Calvary. See that? Because Paul says the foundation that I laid is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to build on that. We're not talking pre, so we're not talking about, by the way, if it's building on after Calvary, which is, is where it is, because you're in 1 Corinthians 3, if in that building I commit sin, what does Colossians 3 and Ephesians 1 tell me? And Colossians 1 tell me. I am forgiven of that, am I not? So this judgment has nothing to do with sin. It has to do with what you've built. Okay? Now, I'm ahead of myself, but I think that's important here. Your heart is what's going to be exposed to the Lord. That's what's exposed here. No guilt, no fear. I had a guy one time tell me, well... You're just telling people to have, be prideful now and building up and doing. And, and I said, but if it's pride that did it, what's the fire going to reveal? <laughs> it's going to smoke it out. It's going to burn it up. So if you're building stuff based on pride, the fire is going to reveal what sort it is, and it's going to be wood, hand stubble, and smoked out. So we're, we do have to recognize the seriousness of the day, if you will. In Romans 14 here, Paul's bringing this up because of that issue of you standing in judgment of the weaker brother. You're not to do that. It's not your place. It belongs to the Lord. So come over to John 5. Here's why the Lord Jesus Christ can be, is the only one who can do this. Look at John 5, and just think about what Paul's doing here. By the way, I hope by the time we get done with this that you have an appreciation of the day, the, judgment, the, the, the day of redemption. And it's not an anxiety moment for you. And it's not something that you are to dread, but rather it's something that you can look forward to because, it, well, man, to be in his presence, we're going to meet him in the air. I mean, man, just he, he himself's coming back for you. He doesn't send no second-rate angel to get you. He comes back. And you're, you're going to sit there. You're not going to go, oh, no, here it comes. You know, Keith just went in. He ain't come out yet. Oh, no. You know, there goes Rick. He's been in there for hours. Oh, no. He ain't going to do that. You know, there's a bunch of us. It's going to take a little time, but it isn't going to be like that at all. You're, you know, you're going to, anyway, John 5. You got John 5? Well, look at verse 22. For the Father, now think about the Father here. For the Father judgeth no man. Now let me ask you something. Can the Father judge man? Yeah, he's the Father. But, but watch, but hath committed all judgment unto the son now why does the father commit all judgment to the son well what's colossians 2 9 say he is the godhead what bodily 
You see, the father really doesn't understand what it is to live in our humanity. He's never done it. Who has? The son has. The father doesn't understand what it is to die. He's never done it. But who has? Think about that. Look at verse 27. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the what? He's the son of man. See that? See, who better to judge another human being than the one who is 100% God and 100% man? See, that's the point here, and that's what Paul's driving in here. You don't have a right because you're just a stinking, dirty, rotten, related to Adam dude. He isn't, and he can judge. Verse 22 Verse 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father and hath not the, which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Who decides who has eternal life? The Lord Jesus Christ does. See, if you believe me, that means you believe the one that sent me, so you get eternal life. Who decided that? Not John, the writer, or Lazarus, or Peter, but who? The God-man did. See, that's the point here. Come over to Acts 17. You see, in the, the issue of judgment, the Father commended all of that to the Son, because who better to relate to humanity than who? Then the God-man, then the Son of Man. And again, that goes, you go back in our study in Romans 1, in the courtroom, in Romans 3, where God finally just says, okay, shut up, enough. Shuts the whole world down. And he says, you're guilty, but I'm going to apply the, the sentence to my son who's died. See, that's the Father saying, he's the one that's paying the penalty for you. Why? Because he's that kinsman redeemer. Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, he's on, he's out and about, he's traveling. Verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Look at that man. Well, who's that? That, yeah, that's right, that's the Lord. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. That man, that's clear. Who are we talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Come over to chapter 10, watch Peter, chapter 10, 10 1040. Peter talking here to Cornelius. And, and the folks, he says, him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. Not to all men, uh, I'm sorry, not to all people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge, by the way, capital J, another one of his titles, 
of quicken the dead. How do you judge a dead man? you got to resurrect him. But who's the one doing it? The Lord Jesus Christ, that man. Come over to 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4. Watch Paul here, 2 Timothy 4. So when in, in Romans 14, we're going to get into the judgment seat of Christ, and it's not our place to sit on it. So who, who, who is the rightful judge? The Lord is. The Lord Jesus Christ is. He is. Why? Because he's the God-man. He can do it righteous. Listen, if I was your judge, a bag of M&M peanuts and you're off the hook. Okay? I'm serious. I got a jug of them in there. You just bring me a, don't bring me a jug. That's way too much. Just bring me a, and guess what? You're good. What did you need? Here, let me write you the check. You know, I'll help See, that's how fickle man is, isn't it? But what does the Lord say? Nope, you're not in me. Oh, you are in me. Well, you know, he's a different, he can't be bought. I can be paid off. M&M peanuts. Go, all right, it's halloween -y time. You know, the best thing about Halloween is all the candy comes out front. And I'm not in the back searching for it. And then I don't have to hide it at the house, you know, because I'm not supposed to have it, you know. I have another hiding place. It's in here. Anyway, don't tell Linda. She knows. She found it the other day. I'm like, oh, got to move it before she does. No, what's going on? 2 Timothy 4, look at verse 1. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, so the Father and the Son, who shall judge the quick and the dead. What's Paul? Where, who? Paul is charging Timothy before who? Well, the Father, but also the one who's judging the quick and the dead, the Lord. He's going to judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Again, he's talking about the whole of the church, the body of Christ. And he, what he's doing to Timothy, because he says, verse 2, preach the word. Timothy, in your preaching and in your teaching, you can help the church. You can save the church from the apostasy that has taken hold of it. That's what 2 Timothy is all about, the church and apostasy. Remember what he told him back there in uh, chapter, oh, chapter 3, chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And the salvation there isn't justification, it's being saved from the apostasy, from the Spirit speaking expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Verse, uh, verse 1, the context. What? Timothy, I charge thee before, 2 Timothy 4, 1, the Lord before God, the Godhead, who's the Lord who judges the quick and the dead, I judge, I'm charging you to preach the word because you can help prepare the church, the body of Christ, and it's there at Ephesus, the totality of it, because he's writing the book, to get out of that apostasy, to get ready for the judgment seat of Christ. Now, by the way, you see how he says, at his appearing and his 
kingdom. You see that? The judging of the dead and the quick and the dead comes in two parts at his appearing. Down in, in the later in the chapter, he says to those who, uh, verse number 8 there, the end, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Who's that? That's us, dispensation of grace. His kingdom is the nation of Israel, the great white throne judgment, and out there. So when he judges, he's not, ju he's not judging everybody at the same time. Why? He's got the, the different programs. So come back to Romans 14. Romans 14. Romans 14. In the context, verse 9, Paul is going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ and the one that sits on the, the, the rightful judge is the one that had died, verse 9, and rose and revived. And he's going to judge the quick and the dead. Okay? Now, the revived. That's where everybody goes into the old good old swoon doctrine. You know what that is? That means that when Christ died on the cross, he really wasn't dead. He was just passed out from the grief and the pain you know, and the, the shock of it all. And when they laid him in the tomb, the cool air calmed him down, and he revived. And then he what? Rose. He got up. Now, we can, you can all go, blah, you know, all right? So then what does revived mean? Because revived and, res, and, and rose are two different things. You can take a nap, revive, and still lay there another hour. Hit, hit, okay? That's a good, that's a good revive. So when we talk here, we're not talking about, and how you know that is that word and. What did he do? He died and rose and revived. Two different things. They're not the same. So the word, the word revive in the dictionary, it means to restore or to resume vital activity. Okay. So the question then, in what sense did Jesus Christ revive? He does die. They, the soldier come around. He didn't make no mistake when he tested the Lord out. You know, he was dead. That's why he didn't break his legs. He just ran a sword in him. Okay? And he rose. We know he did. The angel says, well, you're looking for the living among the dead. He ain't here, ladies. What are you doing? Okay, now that's my, that's what I would say to him. I, what are you doing here? <laughs> okay, and he revived. So in what sense does he revive? Well, it's in the sense that he resumes his original place and purpose, his original function, and his original functionality. He's literally restored back to that place, that position that he originally Enjoyed. Come over to 1 Corinthians 15. So, again, 1 Corinthians 15, great passage on the resurrection, verse 47. Who was he? 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So who is he? He's the Lord from heaven. He came into this world as who? The Lord from heaven. Come over to Philippians 2. And on your way, get 2 Corinthians 8. Philippians 2, 2 Corinthians 8. 
Philippians 2. You have to think about this. This issue of being revived isn't that he was, you know, resurrected. It's that he's being restored back into that original position that was his, that he enjoyed in the beginning. Philippians 2, verse 6. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being, who, Christ Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Who was he? He's God. He's the Lord from heaven. That's who he is. But made himself of no reputation. He chose an act of his own free will to say, you know what? I'm not going to hold to the reputation of being God. Doesn't change the fact that he's God. He just says, I'm not going to run that reputation out there. Okay? We all understand what reputation is. Took upon him the form of, I, I love that, form of a servant, and was made, that word made. He was made to be sin, and we were made righteous, 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? That word made is, it, we were taken, were we always righteous? No, so he took something that was normally this and made it into something abnormal. Christ was perfect without sin. He became sin. He was what? Made. He, this is what he originally was, and he was turned in. He was made into something that wasn't his normal makeup. Okay? He was made in the likeness of men. He was this. He's God. He chose to come down here and be into something that he, it's not his normal makeup, <laughs> okay? And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Hold on to Philippians 2, go to 2 Corinthians 8, look at verse 9. This is what he did. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became Poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. That's Philippians 2, 5 to 8. What did he do? Where was he originally? He's God. He's the Son. He was made into man, humanity. In humanity, what did he do? Go back to Philippians 2. He died and rose, right? And revived. Look at verse 9, 2 9. Wherefore God, that's the Father, also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in the earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now think about this. He died and he rose. Now, he goes and he walks. Remember Acts 1? He spends the 40 days with the guys, gets them all ready, educates them, opens their understanding. Luke 24, they get what's going on. That's why, Paul, that's why Peter can quote that obscure passage out of Psalms about Judas and put them together. That's why he can do what he does and say, and everybody's marveling it. That's why they can speak in tongue, do all that stuff. And then he's what? Ascended. What, remember the angel? What are you guys doing? Get to work. Let's go. He's, and he's coming back. But 
that he revived. When he rose, he, he was brought back to the rightful place where he belonged at the right hand of the Father. Look at that, verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, the name of his humanity... What did, they, what did Gabriel say to Joseph and Mary? You will call his name Jesus. See that? Jesus is his humanity. That's his name. Christ, the anointed one, Lord, deity, who he is, God, there he is, Jehovah, boom. But at his name, at his humanity, because what did he do? Though he were rich, he became poor. He, verse 8, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So what did we do? At, every, at that name of Jesus, verse 10, every knee shall bow, should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue. There's, by the way, Isaiah 45 again. That's the quote. The, God, the Jehovah of the Old Testament is the same one that's going to sit there. He's the same one that went and died and rose again and then revived. He was placed back into the rightful place where he belongs, at the right hand of the Father, with all authority, with all the judgments given to him to carry out and to do. Who's going to sit on the great white throne judgment? He is. Who's sitting on the judgment seat of Christ? He is. Why? He's been revived. He's been restored, put back into that place of adoration, of glory, of love, of acceptance, of who he is. Remember in John, when he looks at the Father, John 17, and he says, I just want the glory that we had back before all this began. Can we go back to that? And the Father says, in Rick's words, yep, as soon as you go die, then we'll get it back. Okay? When he revived, he, he, come back to Romans 14. He's placed back into his capacity as who he really is. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge of the quick and the dead. The quick and the living. No, the quick and the dead. Quick is living. Living and dead and the living. Quicken the let you know what I mean, okay? So in Romans 14, 9 and 10, 9, here's who he is. We are the Lord's, the end of verse 8. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not, thy brother? Set it not. You're not to look at the weaker brother's inferior. You're not to reach in there and beat him up and try to get him on your level. You're not to do that. You're to receive him. You're to think about him as an adult would think about him and, and love him and protect him and, and help him, edify him. And by the way, don't you dare sit in that judgment seat. That ain't yours. It's his. Okay? So that's where we're at. He will never, you know, it's fascinating. He died once for all, Hebrews says. He'll never be cut on again. He'll ha he has the scars. They're there. 
because he's got that humanity. He'll never be humiliated again. It's done. Why? Because he's been revived. He's been set back as the second member of the Godhead right where he was, is to be. And Paul says, that's the one that has the rights to judge. Okay? Now, we're going to pick up in verse 10, 11, 12, 13 here over the next several weeks. We'll look at some judgments next time, I hope. I got through further. Actually, we did really good today. You guys were good listeners. And, uh, you know, again, I understand when we start talking about the judgment seat of Christ, a lot of questions come up. Hold them, ask them, interrupt me as we go through this stuff. You can ask, that's fine. Because I, I want you to understand. Because the judgment seat of Christ is it's like the doctrine of forgiveness. It's a tremendously liberating doctrine to understand. And when you understand it, then you can do that thing with, your, with yourself. I, I love Paul. Examine yourself. You're responsible for you. And you can look at your activity and say, wait a minute, is this activity matching what the wisdom, understanding, and knowledge is, or is it wood, hay, and stubble, the human effort, the human religion? Is it that? Because if it's that, I'm going to stop it. But if it's that, I'm going to continue. And then you can judge yourself that way. And you never need anyone else to come along and judge you. Now, there is the help of the other brothers and believers and so forth, and those are extremely rare occasions. The first step is you with you. You, 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 you. me, myself, and I, and the Scripture. And then if I need help, I list the help of others. Okay? It's never to be the others first. It's to be me here. Okay? So we'll look at all of that as we move through. All right? Dear Holy Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the instructions, and we thank you that you are the Lord and that you're the one that will be doing the judging in the end. In your name we pray. Amen.